Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm your fourth week host, Stu Levitan. My guest today is one of the most interesting and politically important UW graduates from the late 60s, Helen Schiller, whose career encompassed almost 30 years of civic activism and community organizing with the Black Panther Party, the Students for a Democratic Society, and the Intercommunal Survival Committee, and 24 years as a member of the Chicago City Council. As I said, interesting and important, enough so for the legendary Studs Terkel to include Helen's oral history as a chapter in his book, Hope Dies Last. Helen has written a memoir of her time on the streets and in the suites. It's called Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. It's from the good people at Haymarket Books. It has been quite a life and career, and it is quite a memoir, and it is quite a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Helen Schiller. Thank you. Morning, Stu. Good to finally meet you. Yeah. In looking back on your life and times to write this book, did you learn anything about yourself or your era? Oh, I turned, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I learned a lot. It, I think perspective is everything, and the process of writing this book was both going back to context and bringing it up from a lens that's the present um, and looking at the future in many ways. So it was was a very, I I suppose that I really got out of the book um, an appreciation for so many people, so much of what I've done and, and very specifically a realization of how much each of us has our own very specific slice of the history and the events that we have. You know, I've always said that history is written by those who win. And so it's really by the victor. So it's really important that regular everyday people get a chance to write their own history. And as I'm writing this, what I realized is that his facts, history, truth of the matter, all of that is really critical, but that we all have a different lens based on where we are at any given moment and our own slice of that experience. Um, and if, and so that just made me very appreciative of the work that so many other people had done along the way, both with me, but also kind of alongside from a distance. I might not even have known them, but we were all part of a sea we've been creating in any given moment in time that relates to how things are progressing or in some cases moving backwards, but always in terms of really appreciating the hard work, the sacrifice, uh, the, the knowledge, the, um, uh, the just fast stewardedness that so many people have contributed to, uh, to a forward-looking view about how the world should be and really trying to make it the world they would like to live in. So yeah, that was to me one of the most important realizations because it made me much more appreciative, made me feel much less isolated. It made me feel much more positive, I think, really about the future. But in, in terms of looking at your own actions and motivations and reactions over the course of those decades, did you see, did you learn anything about yourself looking back at your earlier iterations that you might not have realized at the time and only with the hindsight of, of the big picture, did you understand how things fit together? I think that probably I didn't realize, I didn't think of anything that I did as being particularly important of itself. I always saw myself as part of a collective process. And I think that I realized how important that process was and how much people contributed to it. But also I realized I was always much stronger than I thought I was. Did your sense of being part of a collective entity for change differ when you were 
on the city council as opposed to when you were with the International Survival Committee and doing stuff as a community organizer? Yeah, for sure. Intercommunal Survival Committee, actually. Um, So we always talked about prestige of power and spent a lot of time, at least I did, putting that in context in order not to be impacted by prestige of power. Because if you're going to speak to, if you're going to challenge power, um, you're going to speak truth to power, then you really need not to be caught up in prestige of power. So the day I became alderman, it was quite surprising that even some of my closest friends and comrades treated me different. Everyone all of a sudden treated me differently. It was like all of a sudden that title made a difference. So that meant I had to recalibrate and I had to acknowledge that there was this thing going on, but I couldn't really challenge people on that because, you know, it's just a reaction. So I had to really sort of recalibrate and redefine the relationships, both personal um, but also just in terms of the way we work. And from a political perspective, I think the most important lesson that I gained was that, um, and which I could really put words to as I was writing the book, was that anyone who is has a piece of the power, anyone who is in a position of some authority needs a seat to swim in. If they want to do, if they want in any way, shape or form to challenge the status quo, or to move forward. And anyone who is interested in changing the status quo, who, uh, who is um, outside of any power relationship needs to make sure there's a seat for those that are there to swim in, in order to be able to be, to move, move along, to be able to, to, to make those changes. And that was a concept that became really important to me. It wasn't personal, it was objective. And we need a seat to swim in both in order to in order for our supporters to be able to affect the change we all want to affect, but also in order to make sure that they have support within whatever bodies they're dealing with. So if there was a if there was a seat for me to swim in, it would help me then force the issue with some of my colleagues and be able to get changes made like the human rights ordinance or the strengthening of apartheid or uh, sanctions or um, fighting against the closing of health clinics or whatever it was that we were trying to deal with. And, um, and that was really very, very, uh, a very important concept for me. And it's one that I really find myself talking about all the time. Um, you can't, especially in Chicago now, we're getting ready for municipal elections. And, um, and that's the one lesson I have is not just for the people who are excited about somebody running or the candidate, but also for the candidate. In other words, for each to understand the symbiotic relationship that's really necessary in terms of criticism and struggle in order to be able to appreciate people coming from their left to push them forward, um, or even maybe just close, not necessarily, but, but say the most extreme, coming from their left to push them forward and not to get defensive about that, but to embrace it. Um, not always going, you know, sometimes you have to kind of be in the middle in order to use that to push somebody else to join you in order to make a, you know, to have the vote you need or whatever. So the seat of women is really critical. Is that something about power that you didn't understand as an organizer, but learned once you were on the council? Well, I think that relationship. So I always knew that we had to push people, but this definition of it, this concept of it became crystal clear um, as I was reviewing different things that happened. So I, I just, in terms of the answer to your question, writing the book helped me be much more clearer about this. So it's a concept that I can pass on now. 
um, as an alderman, well, as a, as a community activist, I think I talk about this at the end of the book, as a community activist, um, we were always making demands uh, that things be changed and, and we often did organizing that showed it was possible. Um, and our point of view was, don't ask us how to do it. Here's the concept, you need to deal with that. As an elected official, I needed, um, well, I actually learned right off the bat from Harold Washington in 1983 when he became the mayor, uh, one of the things that was true is that very few organizations, uh, people's organizations or anyone that were doing, were doing work in the community that wasn't tied to the machine had very few, if any, probably none actually had access to uh, resources to help them do what they were doing. Harold said, look, we're gonna take all these black grants that we have from the federal government, whatever, and we're gonna open it up. And I need all of you guys who are part of creating the movement that helped me get elected and to now step forward and start doing things, take a project, take something that you're gonna build a model for in your community um, that we can then test and see if it works in city government. And people all over the city did that. In Uptown, we focused on a health project called the Good Health Place. But people did different things all over the city. The point about this is that his perspective was, let's just open it up. Let people who are really there on the ground help us figure out how to redefine this government. He had been very specific. He wanted to challenge um, in, institutional racism and institutional corruption. He was very clear that that was a, something that you couldn't do overnight, that it had to be internalized, that you had to make changes, but also the change had to be internalized. And he always said it would take at least 20 years, which in and of itself is a huge, I think, important lesson. These are protracted struggles that it takes time. Uh, hearkening back to the Black Panther Party, for me, it was always, you had to have, uh, you had to have uh, survival pending revolution, as we said then. So that all of these things are part of what it takes to really change the society in, in the direction in which we may want. And Harold was made that part of his administration. He wasn't defensive. He didn't react in a reactionary manner to criticism um, that was that was intent on identifying what worked and didn't work. That was different from the polarization against him that said, you, we're not going to let you do anything. He was very strong on that, and he was very good at responding to it. He knew how to have a political fight and to win. But for him, these two things, I think, were really important lessons for me. One, the one about uh, just not being defensive and to be open and taking the ideas other people had and not be afraid to say that didn't work or this did work and to be able to move forward. And the other being that you really needed to uh, have a long-term perspective because changes not only met conflict, but to really have a significant change, it was more of a prolonged struggle. You had to have an internalization of those changes, the things that are so key and so important and so much of the foundation of our country that don't work anymore, can't work anymore, and that have to be changed. Speaking of Harold Washington, you ran for the council in 78 and 79, losing to a candidate of the Democratic machine. Would you have run again in 1987 if Mayor Harold Washington hadn't recruited you to be that critical 26 vote to get his appointees and agenda passed? Not in my lifetime. No, no way. <laughs> I only ran after he worked on me for about a year and a half to do so. And ultimately, I mean, he was trying to get me to do so before when he had a 29-21 split. As uh, soon as the, um, in, in, um, a, in 1986, there was a special election held as a result of a lawsuit against the um, 
previous maps that were drawn. And the consequence of that was that uh, he had, there were special elections and he ended up in 1986 uh, with a year to go on his first term with a split in the city council 25-25. And it was really at that point when he said to me, okay, now you're, it really makes a difference. Uh, it, when the council was split 25-25, everyone had to come and Harold had to break the tie. He could break the tie. So he was able to get um, uh, people appointed to boards and commissions, which in Chicago was critical. That meant he could make changes in the park district, in the school system, in the, in the transit authority, in the housing authority. It was, it was huge. Um, however, he really needed to get that 26 vote because it was always, you really had to make sure everybody was on board all the time. I mean, we have an example of it now in the, in the federal government with the Senate. You know, I knew I could beat the guy who was the alderman of our ward and uh, who was part of the opposition. And uh, so I couldn't say no. And that's the only reason I ran. But I did tell him if I'm going to run, then my priority once being elected and being there and being part of your team, my primary elective is going to be to prove you can do development without displacement. And you have to know that because I'm not giving up on that. And that led to many, many conversations with him because he came from the first congressional district, which was historically the heart of the Black Belt, had been, had been terribly divested in. And in, the, in 1986, was going into the 87 elections, had been an area that had been hugely divested. It was lots of vacant land. Development was really desired. And he didn't understand why we what we were talking about. It was just he was on a different place in the cycle of speculation that occurs in the real estate market. So we had lots of conversations and he got it very quickly and said, sure, I'm with you. Um, had promised, uh, I was elected in um, April of 1987, sworn in later that month, beginning of May, and then twice actually, the beginning of May finally. And then he died in, in November. That was only seven months. And he had promised me, we were right in the, at the end of putting together a proposal that I had that would have created owner-occupied three flats targeted at young people, young professionals who've grown up in the neighborhood, like teachers, whatever, with uh, basically two extra apartments that they could use to be able to have a more affordable rents for people in the community. They could have families or friends, but also with an agreement that those would be, be moderately priced rental units. So we had worked all this out and we're waiting on, um, uh, we needed some support and help. We needed a legislative uh, action by the county board and they, they were holding it up to try and get Harold to, uh, for, on a dream ticket, what they called a dream ticket for the upcoming political uh, primaries in March. And um, at the very last minute, um, this, uh, they had very last minute because it ended up being the last minute before Harold died. Uh, they had, there was an agreement. So uh, we were moving right along. But Harold had told me that he would put somebody, he would put his housing commissioner on it, you know, as a priority starting in January. And meanwhile, we were doing this, we were putting together all of the mechanics necessary to do this one thing. But starting in January, he was going to really work with me on the legislative pieces that I have to deal with, uh, to deal with development without displacement, et cetera. And then he died. And the council... Uh, immediately, the new majority in the council, uh, which was organized quickly to really, from the perspective of, of Harold's opposition, to, to basically break up his coalition. It was more complicated than that, but that's the essence of it. 
took power and they in, took control and they immediately killed my proposal. And, um, and everything from there was uphill, whatever I did. I mean, I had, um, we, we, I actually had a proposal to change a minor change in zoning in order to make sure that domestic violence shelters addresses were not public. The way it existed was in order to be able to to open legally a domestic violence shelter, you had to go through what we call the Zoning Board of Appeals and get approval. To go before the Zoning Board of Appeals, you had to give your address. It had to be public. So everybody could know uh, what the address was. So you didn't have um, any uh, any of the official um, domestic violence shelters were all public, which was really a problem because there's that would lead to violence. And uh, it took me 10 years at least to get them to agree to make a minor change so that wasn't the case. I mean, it was it was insane. Now, who would have fought, who fought that? It was many aldermen fought it as and the, 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 the mayor's office of intergovernmental affairs said we can't do it because we won't get enough support from the aldermen because they don't, they think you're really talking about uh, opening up the, the floodgates for, for homeless shelters. Um, I'm like, well, I'd love to open up the floodgates for homeless shelters, but that's not actually what this is about. And, um, and the aldermen, uh, so I tried to go around that, but they were right. The aldermen, the majority aldermen were really opposed to it. And, but they all could have changed that. I mean, the mayor's office could have come down and said, no, we're doing this. Um, but they were terrified of, having more homeless shelters and they perceived the domestic violence shelters. Some of them perceived it as being for the homeless, but many of them just said, well, it's a slippery slope. You're just gonna, it'll be a slippery slope. So it took me, took me a good 10 years. Yeah. We're talking with Helen Schiller. Her book is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. Let's go back to, so let's go back to the beginning. Your parents were immigrant Jews uh, from Eastern Europe, uh, members of the Communist Party in the 30s and 40s. How old were you when you found out you were a red diaper baby? I don't know. Um, I'm, I don't know. I guess I pro probably always knew it. I have no idea. So, so it, it didn't make a My parents weren't, they weren't, um, after, I mean, from by the time that I was probably around the time I was born, they really had no, they stopped having much of a relationship to um, the Communist Party. I think my dad, who liked to argue a lot, was probably kicked out around the time that I was born, and my mother just stopped going to meetings. So they kind of just fell away. Um, my mother had been mostly involved. I mean, my mother had been involved in organizing in, she'd been a nurse in the 30s and 40s. So she was involved in late 30s, early 40s. She was involved in um, some union organizing um, as a nurse. My dad was a had was pretty much a self-taught chemist. Had actually taught chemistry, I believe, at NYU during the as a as part of the WPA. He um, he I never it was hard to get details from him, but by the uh, it at the beginning of the war, his, his family he hadn't been in touch with his family. He came here alone when he was twelve from Latvia, and um, and and you know 
the only communication was writing. He wasn't much of a writer. So he didn't have much communication with his family, but you know, the Jewish community in New York pretty much knew what was happening in the Holocaust. And even if it was being denied by the powers that be. So in the late thirties and early forties, and when the US got into the war, he tried to join the army. But when he came here at the age of 12, he was alone. He pretended to be 14, He, pa- I mean, 16, he passed for 16. And so his legal age was always four years older than his actual age. And they wouldn't accept him in the army since they said he was too old. And, you know, this was personal to him because he knew all his family was being affected. And by then, Latvia had been, you know, uh, was had been completely taken over by the Nazis or at least. Yeah, I guess it was all of Latvia. So um, he, he was very concerned and he was a chemist. He made uh, paint sinks and lacquers for. Um, Uh, textiles. And he was pretty sure, or at least he felt or believed that all of the major chemical companies were actually uh, doing stuff in Germany. And they were creating, um, they were part of the uh, creation of the chemicals that were being used to, to kill people in the gas chamber. So he refused to work for any of them. So he started his own business. It was very small. And um, that's what he did, made paint sinks and lacquers. So he was very busy doing that. My mother was helping him and they were raising kids. So uh, they pretty much just did their own thing and were very, you know, but, but always talked, had huge, often personal arguments reflected in a political discussion at dinner. We had dinner every night at six and every night at six, there was a conversation about politics and about what was going on in the world. So that was really what I remember. But my mother had gotten rid of most of her political books. We had a scare, which I read about in the book and um, that my father did with the FBI. My mother got rid of almost all her books, but one that remained was uh, Reconstruction by Howard Fast. And that was the first chapter book that I read. I just took it off the shelf one day and read it. And I think that probably had more influence on me than almost anything else during that period of time. That and the McCarthy hearings that my father had me watch a few years earlier. Your father died well before your political career got started. He died in 1973, but I was, it was my political career, but I was very, I was already in the Intercommunal Survival Committee. He was extremely supportive. He gave me money. He gave me the almost the last of money that he had to give to the Black Panther Party in Chicago. He was he was uh, yeah he was re- very present and very supportive. Your mother though did see your entire live throughout your entire career yeah. on the city council. What did she think about your work? Well, you know, my mother always wanted always thought you weren't successful unless you were a doctor or a lawyer and 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 pretty much a man. Um, So she was, it wasn't until, I don't ever think I ever got any kind of positive encouragement from her until I became an alderman because that was prestige. So she, then all of a sudden she could be proud of me. One of her flaws. Um, Anyway, so she was, you know, she loved it. She was very proud of me. And then she, as she got older, she needed more and more assistance. And um, I was going to, even though I had a brother who lived in Connecticut, um, I, he worked and he was, he came in to visit her occasionally, but she really needed help. So I was literally coming out to see her once a month and just do bunches of stuff for her until it was clear that was hard because I was also the alderman, but also it was clear that she needed more help than that. And 
after having lived from the time she was six and a half years old when she came to this country until 2007, she had always lived in one of the boroughs of New York City or Long Island in Nassau County. And I made her move to Chicago. And so, because I, I told her, if you, I can't help you. I can't do this anymore. So she came to Chicago and then loved, I think, you know, she was, she, she was able, she was very proud. She was always telling people this, that, and the other. And I was a celebrity in Chicago. So that made her very happy. Unlike most parents back then, your father actually encouraged you to get politically involved when you came to Madison in the fall of 65. But you really didn't, even though there were interesting things going on in 65. Why the reticence about plunging right in as soon as you got here? I don't think I had reticence so much. I was just very shy and trying to navigate a new situation. I had been at a very, very small high school. Uh, there were never more than 100 students. And I really needed to be, and also my family was very, I felt smothered. So I really wanted to be far away and I wanted to be in a place with as many people as possible. And then I had to learn to navigate it. So it wasn't so much that I was averse to anything. I was just slowly but surely figuring out who I was, what I was doing. And my dad was frustrated that I wasn't more involved and he let me know it. There are a lot of interesting and important illustrations in the book, but I think the one that will have the greatest impact on people in Madison is the reproduction of the program for the presentation by the Mime and Man Theater of Brendan Behan's The Hostage, because among the players in that production are Betsy Edelson, Roger yeah. Turner, and Mike Wilmington. Yeah, yeah. And Betsy Edelson, I think, directed it, as I recall. At least that was always my recollection. Yeah. What, what do you remember of, of those three, and particularly of, of Mike Wilmington? Well, actually, the one that I remember the most is Betsy. Yeah. Honestly, I, my um, I was I did clothe I did the uh, costumes, which I thought was going to be sewing and stuff, but really it was going to secondhand stores and finding stuff that fit the uh, fit the character. Um, but honestly, <laughs> I think Betsy is the only one that I really, really remembered and connected with. Um, there's so many people that go through my life and I don't remember them. And in fact, I hadn't remembered that Michael was on that until I saw the uh, the playbill as we were, again, when I was putting the book together, truth be told. Yeah. That production was also terribly important to you, wasn't it? It For was usually, yeah, it was, I, it, to me, it was a moral, um, it's kind of a moral play that challenged, it was a really important way to think about and challenge the struggles that people have because it was all about, because it was all about everyone's humanity, but about a real struggle that was really very critical. And what do you do in that circumstance? And it was about holding a hostage um, against uh, a situation where some, you know, one person was going, they were holding the, uh, the, the it was the uh, members of the IRA, but kind of raggedy tag members of the raggedy tag members of the IRA holding a an English soldier hostage because the British in London were holding a young, a youthful member of the IRA hostage uh, in preparation to, I believe, um, they were going to be, um, I, I think it was a de on a death sentence, as I recall. But uh, so it was a whole very 
there was a it was a, a moral dilemma kind of thing, and so that was really important to me. I think thought it was very real, and it made you think about many many different things. Um, and it was my first foray. It was the way in which I responded to my dad's demand uh, to get involved and encouragement. And so I found the play because it was being put on for the benefit of the committee in the war in Vietnam. And that brought me into so many other things. Um, and, uh, and I think it was the camaraderie, which I have to emphasize was really important, even if I don't remember everyone's names <laughs> or people, um, and, and consequently really into the anti-war movement. So yeah, it was important. And it was the base, and it was how I named my son. Actually, yeah, so provide yeah. the the inspiration for naming your yeah. son, who is also doing quite well. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> as as a, a human rights attorney. Well, yeah. So he's currently not practicing law, but he, um, yeah, was very has has been quite successful. I think in um, in in in. Uh, uh, addressing police misconduct, but mostly social justice issues, and um, and has gotten very involved in that regard. Yeah, you were active in both the committee to end the war in Vietnam and the Madison Students for a Democratic Society. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe your role and position within the various organizations and the various movements of the time? Just as part of it. I don't think I had any special rule, uh, role. I did go to Cuba in 1968 as part of an SDS sponsor. It was before the Vince Ramos Brigade. It was part of an SDS sponsored trip of 30 students in the summer of 1968. I think that, that when I came back, I, I did do several large um, meetings that I, along with others who had been on the trip. And that was, in my, in my recollection, the only time that I really was sort of public or like the person anyone was focused on because I was part of a forum and we were talking about our experience in Cuba. I think generally speaking, I always thought of myself as sort of one of the workhorses that, you know, and that's, I felt very comfortable there. I was, you know, one of the people just doing work. I hope I can convey this in the way I want to. I've done a fair amount of reading in this period. Now, I've written a book on mass in the 60s, so I'm, I'm conversant with, with these issues. Mm -hmm. and. I had never come across your name yeah. until this book, but you've been doing this and you have stayed committed and active for 50 years. And I'm just wondering if there's any connection between people who are not, who were not seeking the limelight 50 years ago, who continue to do stuff day in and day out for 50 years, as opposed to people who were seeking the limelight 50 years ago and, and may have been bright stars for two or three years. and then gave up the struggle? Well, I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that there's thousands of people, if not more, millions in the world, who are very engaged in the struggle in different places, who may never be known, the unsung heroes, because, because only some people get the limelight. And there's a lot of ways and reasons for the limelight. They take it, they're given it, whatever the reason being. But that's not a reflection of the significant numbers of people that are part of creating the opportunity for that limelight, um, or as I would say, the sea to swim in. And I think that um, I think that's actually a really important point because a lot of times the reason we don't recognize that is that we 
don't we um, are too focused where we're because the media focuses on the individual and um, and and it's often encouraged to have an individual so that they could be knocked down uh, by the powers that be. So I think that we have to be able to understand and grasp that on the one hand in order to be able to protect those folks that are in the limelight representing us. But we also have to protect the breadth of people that are doing the work every day on a different level that creates those possibilities um, in order to be able to, to know and acknowledge and appreciate and join um, those activities in order to really be, be able to grow rather than to diminish our potential for change. One of the, the many actions that, that had a couple of leaders and a lot of people online was blocking of the Commerce Building on October mm -hmm. 18th, 1967 to prevent people from interviewing with the Dow Chemical Company because it made napalm for use in Vietnam. You were in the corridor that morning. It doesn't appear from your narrative that, and, and then police came in and started wailing away with, with billy clubs and yep. sending a lot of people to the emergency room. Uh, it doesn't appear from your narrative that they beat you, but did they come close? Yeah, so I was, you know, they were just madly beating at people and they were, there was a revolving, one of those revolving doors was one of the exits anyway. And we were pushed towards those doors. So the people in front of me, person in front of me got badly hurt. Um, I don't know about the person behind me, but I think that, you know, I think it was like hit and miss who was actually hit, especially at that point. So I, I, I escaped being personally physically harmed, but my friends didn't, all my friends did not. Yeah. Several did, but yeah. You were a history major, right? Yeah. So I assume you have a good Harvey Goldberg story or two. <laughs> well, I loved Harvey Goldberg's. Um, I loved his lectures. I just loved his lectures. Yeah. I have a Mossy story, though. George sure, story. sure. So I'm back from, I can't remember if it was the year I'm back from Cuba or it was the year that Che Guevara was killed. It might have been the class on the day that Che Guevara was killed or the day after, because I that seems to resonate in my brain. But um, George Mossy told the story about how when he was in the resistance in Europe, before he came to the States, that he had trained himself to forget names. And, um, and I was like, I, that grabbed me. I was into that. Um, I got that. And I had, you know, my background at that point had been, I'd recently within the last year or two, uh, gone back and watched the movie Point of Order about the McCarthy hearings because when I was um, when I was in kindergarten, my dad had had me watch them talk about fascism and and remind me to tell me to just remember that. So of course I did, and I'd read it. So that's on my mind, right? And he's talking about Nazi Germany, which of course was on our dinner table conversation virtually every night. So I'm listening really carefully, and I'm like, and I, you know, I've already, I think this is after I went to Cuba, so I'm kind of committed. And I um, go, oh, my God, I'm going to learn how to do that. And uh, I can't remember names to save my life. And, uh, and, be, and so actually, so that's what I did. So then fast forward, I become an alderman and I can't remember people's names. So I really work hard at remembering their faces. And people will come up to me and say, OK, do you, do you don't remember me, do you? And if I didn't, didn't, I would say, no, I don't remember you. But if I did, I would say yes. And then they would say, 
well, what's my name? And I'm like, oh my God, I don't remember names. And they would look at me, yeah, like you don't remember me. So then at that point, I would remember, however, every way I knew them because I knew them, I recognized them. And then I would tell them all the ways that I knew them. I'm like, you live over here, your aunt is so-and-so, you've got this many kids. And they'd go, oh, you really do know me. And that's how I got past it. But I still can't remember names to save my life. Which, which can be a hindrance in writing a memoir. <laughs> yeah, so I have a lot of files and resources. And Googling is a, an amazing invention because that really saved me. <laughs> there was somebody that I worked with. Um, I spent two, two weeks in the, um, <laughs> at, the, at the Ministry of Information of the Black Panther Party working on the Black Panther paper in 1975. And one of the people I worked with was amazing. And I spent, it took me three years to get, I mean, talking to people actually, but it took me a, to finally get not only her full name, because I always remembered her first name, but the spelling of her name. And it was hysterical because that was exactly the situation. I knew her, I wanted to, I wanted to acknowledge her. I could not remember her name. And finally, I think I got it right. Hopefully I got it right. <laughs> We're going to get to Black Panthers in just a second, but one one more thing about SDS. When SDS started to split in 1969, you identified with the Revolutionary Youth Movement too, and not the Weathermen. I know it wasn't a consideration at the time, but if you had been in the Weathermen, could you have gotten elected to the city council? Uh, I suppose it would have depended on what I did. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Was there a reason you didn't, was, was, did you sense a, a proclivity towards violence in the weathermen and, and stayed away or why, why did no, you? I just didn't think that going underground or, I mean, we didn't know what they were going to do initially. We were, our focus was uh, being visible and talking to people and organizing people and engaging in, um, you know, we really were following the model. We chose to follow the model of the Black Panther Party. Uh, this was when I was living in Racine. I just moved to Racine in 1969. I had just left Madison. I had been in Racine for maybe a month when the convention happened in Chicago. And um, I, I remember we came to Chicago and our initial response to the folks that were, were beginning to form um, the ones that we interacted with when we were there were beginning to form weathermen was we didn't really, we didn't really take them seriously. Um, we didn't feel, I mean, the work, we really, our focus was grassroots work. And um, so we didn't really take seriously or feel like anyone else was going to necessarily be effective. We felt like the reason we went there was the, we were out of the classroom. We were out of the campus. We wanted to get in the real world. And we needed to interact with people directly. We uh, we agree. We all agreed on what was wrong with the world. Um, we agreed with the kind of changes we envisioned. Um, it was just we didn't have the we didn't agree on the tactics. We felt that we were in different times and places in regards to what we needed to be to do. And um, so, I, in my mind, it wasn't ever really a choice. Uh, I was gonna, you know, I thought we were on the the better path, at least for me. Um, and it was just a handful of us in Racine. There were a few people that had gone also to do the same work in Milwaukee and also in Waukegan, Illinois. Each of those work that was being done in each of those places varied some. I think that there were 
of the people who went to Madison, I mean, to Milwaukee, I'm pretty sure some of them ended up with Rim 2 and some with the Weatherman. Um, but we pretty much, after Fred died, um, really focused just on Racine and had some interaction with people in Chicago, largely because we were interacting with the Black Panther Party. And, um, and I kind of lost track of most everyone else. Uh, we were so focused on what we did every day. You just mentioned Fred. The title, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, is a slight modification of the adage from Black Panther Party, Illinois Black Panther Party Chairman Fred Hampton's adage, dare to struggle, dare to win. You heard him say that in a social sciences building in May 1969 with the added commentary, if you don't dare to struggle, you don't deserve to win. What do you remember about that first direct exposure to Fred Hampton? Well, it was in an auditorium. I, I see it as an auditorium. I guess it was a classroom. It was huge. It was big. It, in my memory, it was big. I think if I went there again, it might be smaller. Um, but they came, he came in with an entourage, a pretty large entourage of Black Panther Party members on security. So at first, it felt a little intimidating. But uh, all that fell away as soon as he started speaking. And all, I mean, for me, it was a call to action. And um, and I uh, that's really what I re I remember just really appreciating that I had been there and had had that opportunity to hear him speak. And um, yeah, no, go ahead. No, it was it was very important. Uh, later on, when we were in Racine and he was, we uh, learned that he had been killed. Uh, it was a turning point for me. Um, at that point, actually, I was there with Mark Zalkin and Steve Gold, both from Madison. And we were seriously, Mark and I were, I mean, I, I'm not sure if Steve had been with us in Racine yet, uh, but we were all there. And Mark and I had um, just had a huge fight and we were planning on leaving. I mean, just leaving Racine. We were going to split up and leave Racine. And we woke up to hear that Fred had been killed and looked at each other and said, we can't go. We have to go back. We may not you know, want to talk to each other, but we're going to go and do this work. And Steve joined us. And uh, we were determined at that point to cement some kind of relationship with uh, the Black Panther Party. And because we really were committed to work under the direction of Black leadership. And all of that, I think, really had been informed. Um, in large measure, not just by that one experience, but by what that experience led us to in terms of studying the platform and program of the Black Panther Party, understanding what they were doing and wanting very much to be able to uh, translate that in our organizing among white people. For white people was our focus. We thought that was the most likely ally. So foreign working people. And that's what we did. And we went back and that's what really that was the most significant commitment from my perspective of the next step in deciding what I was going to do for the rest of my life, not really having a plan. <laughs> um, and uh, we went back to Racine and stayed there uh, for several years. And, and um, because we did that, we uh, needed to be able to reestablish relationships. We were now, um, we had been communicating with the, uh, National Committee to Combat Fascism in Milwaukee, which was a precursor to being members of the party for them. And Fred Hampton in the week before he died had uh, disbanded everybody 
all the chapters in Illinois, I think, and the the national uh, the Milwaukee's chapter, national chapter to combat fashion was affected. So we had to figure out. We didn't know what was going on. We had to figure out how to make a connection. We connected with Slim Coleman and Kathy Archibald. I'm not sure what. I don't think it was for the first time, but anyway, we but we did connect with them when we went to the funeral, and uh, they connected us with uh, the uh, with the uh, with Harold Bell and Ray Lewis from the Rockford chapter of the Black Panther Party, and they started doing. Uh, they agreed to get us Black Panther papers, which we sold and paid them for, and um, and to do political education with us. Uh, once a month um, from then on for quite a while. And that was really, that was very, very important for the development of our relationship and ultimately for our choice to go to Chicago in 1972 and become part of the Intercommunal Survival Committee, which was cadre, 24-7 cadre of white people working under the direction of the Black Panther Party with our goal of uh, organizing white people to join the Black-led struggle for liberation. And our friend and co-worker Dean Loomis was uh, yes, with you. So Dean Loomis, we met in Racine, and he was very much a part of the uh, activities, our activities there, which was we developed survival programs, and um, we had a breakfast program. We had a, we drove people, families to visit their loved ones in, in state prisons. Uh, we did clothing programs. We had a bookstore. We had a lot of stuff going on. And Dean was one of the people that was recruited and joined us and worked closely with us for many years and then came to Chicago for several years as well. And what was the Uptown neighborhood like when you moved there in the summer of 72? It was, uh, it was, the people who lived in Uptown in the summer of 17, 70, 1972 were the following. It was the highest concentration of poor white people, largely from um, Appalachia, but not entirely uh, in, in, in Chicago, but I think in, in, um, in, in most urban areas. It was the largest concentration of Native peoples from in, in an urban area one of the largest. Um, it was the, had been the port of entry for many of the Japanese Americans moving um, east from Arizona and California after being interned um, during the war. Uh, many of whom, especially by this time, several elderly people who uh, stayed, in, but not entirely, but who stayed in Uptown. Um, later on in the mid seventies, it became a port of entry from people from all over Southeast Asia after the end of the Vietnam War. Um, there, there had also, there was a, I think probably Koreans already living there. Later on, even later than that, it became port of entry for Russian Jews, seniors mostly, who were coming in through the various different Jewish organization airlifts from Russia, um, from the Soviet Union. And, um, but in, in 1972, it was also the home of the oldest black community or the first home outside of the black belt uh, uh, for black people in Chicago, which there's a story of in the book. And, um, and it was very poor for the most part, but it was surrounded poor and working families. I mean, that, there were literally uh, 
people, there were both people who, there were a lot of factories that people were just beginning to lose their jobs in where there had been both skilled labor and unskilled labor, but it was very um, unsteady at that point because the economy was changing. And a lot of the factories were closing or beginning to, or they were changing how they were doing stuff. Um, but there was also in the, in the mid sixties and uh, early seventies throughout the country, federal government had created uh, through the through Congress, mortgage programs, low interest mortgage programs during a time of double digit inflation um, in order to encourage the construction of low and moderate income housing. And they were all high rises that were built, some for seniors, most for families. And in Chicago, there were 10,000 of those built and 4,000 of them were in the broader uptown area. Um, and they were who lived there were people from literally every country every um, continent, every uh, all from all over the US and from all over Chicago. So it was each building had their own character and they were all very different and some had more moderately priced units and some had low income units with um, section A type certificates. Uh, so it was a so that if you put all that together, it was hugely diverse. And but politically what they had done, was they, we were uh, in between Uptown and the lakefront was a row of high rises that were all, uh, was at that point in 1972, it was not just middle-class, but it was majority Jewish. So there were 10,000 Jewish voters along the lakefront. And, um, and there were a single, and Uptown had, at the heart of Uptown was kind of ringed with single family homes that were obviously also wealthier people. So when they drew the ward boundaries, they drew it in a way that made sure that the concentration of poor and working people of really all backgrounds that lived in Uptown, um, their voting power was diluted by the numbers of people, especially along the lakefront that they had included in the ward boundary. And, um, and they did no voter registration among poor and working people. So that one of the early things that I did, I think was in 1973, was an analysis of voting patterns and registration patterns. And what we realized and learned was that the registration was so low, especially in the heart of Uptown, that um, li literally, if you counted the the people who were eligible to vote and weren't registered, and the people who were eligible to vote voted had were registered but hadn't voted. That what we figured out that the aldermen of that ward had been elected with less than 17% of the potential voting population. So we started uh, what would be a very long, several decades long process of uh, getting people to register to vote and to circumvent the difficulties and barriers, make it easy for people. We took them downtown all the time. We made demands for broadening. We joined groups that were you know, fighting to broaden uh, access to voting, reg voter registration and voting um, pretty successfully with some of our allies and, uh, uh, and, and started to change that dynamic. Some of the streets or prominent buildings that are within the uptown neighborhood or what? Broadway, Lawrence, Montrose, Wilson, Sheridan Road, Clark Street. Those are the big boundaries. It's technically it's Irving Park for those of anyone who knows Chicago. It's Irving Park to Foster, the lake to um, pretty much to Clark Street. Although I actually went to Ravenswood te legally, technically. 
Um, when we first got there, the Edgewater and Uptown were one community and Edgewater went north about another mile or two. And um, at some point early on in the 70s, it was uh, the, the two were split into two different communities. Just as you were arriving in Chicago in the summer of 72, Saul Alinsky, who had spent 30 years organizing in Chicago, was dying. He, I think he died within weeks of your moving there. If he had still been living and was still in Chicago, is he someone you would have sought out in any way uh, to talk about Chicago organizing, or would you have written him off? Uh, well, we wouldn't have written him off, but we would not have seen him as an ally. He was very close to the machine. And what I learned ultimately, or came to believe about his organizing, I've read all of this stuff. What I came to believe was that this is a good example of structure and content. It's kind of, and we had, the, so when we first came to Chicago, let me say this first, what we, how we viewed the machine was structure and content. Um, it was, it was, I didn't talk about this, but politically speaking, um, I just talked about who lived in Uptown, but in 1972, Uptown was uh, very, strongly controlled by the then democratic machine in a way that doesn't exist today. People talk about it like they know what they're talking about. It, 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 nothing is like it was then. Um, the Daily Machine was still very much alive. Daily had, uh, was still alive. He didn't die for another several years. And, um, and they pretty much controlled people's lives, especially in, in poor and working communities. So um, they had control over welfare, which was a big deal then. They had they had control over uh, most of the uh, managers of housing that people lived in. They had control over uh, so much of what people, and people were very poor. They had difficulty getting food. They offered food. They offered drink. They offered rent. They offered not to get you kicked off of welfare. Uh, all these different things in order to control how you were voting. Um, but they had a structure that we felt was a helpful structure. It was the content that was a problem. So we had this, we really did look at it as structure and content. I feel the same way about Alinsky's organizing. I think he has some very good suggestions and methods of work, um, tools to be used, if you will, for organizing. But the content that he put into it was aligned with the machine and led to what I believe in a way that led to opportunism the same way that you see opportunism in, in the political arena. So often when we were interacting with people who organized along an Alinsky model, the conflicts we had always came down to uh, the ultimate organizing, uh, the ultimate negotiating that was done at the end of an, of an organizing campaign. So you pick, you have, an, you have something you're working on. I mean, so we always started from the point of view of what the needs of people were and what do you do to get to a solution? So we were always guided by an actual material impact. What we found often when we were in coalition with somebody was that they were not so much interested. That was, they were, that was helpful. And they liked the idea of that and they might even have believed in it. But in the end, they were, they, they, they were more often than not swayed by a notion of let's just go for, if we can't, we don't think we can get the material impact, let's just get the recognition so that we can at least raise money for the next fight. And that to me always led to cynicism, undermined what you were trying to accomplish and rarely led, um, only led by accident. Uh, to or or maybe because the organizing was so good early on to a material impact, but not necessarily to one that would really be sustainable. Now there's obvious exceptions to that, 
but the level of opportunism we felt, or at least I felt, um, outweighed the 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 outweighed the practice. And so I was always worked a lot with people who studied under Linsky, and I think that. Um, there were a lot of very positive aspects in terms of tools, but I've always had an issue with the Linsky organizing. It doesn't seem to me to be geared towards true problem solving. It, it lends itself open too much to opportunism. Hmm. What was your greatest strength as an organizer? Stubbornness, my determination to leave no stone unturned. Uh, I think um, my real focus on, on a material impact and, um, and my grasp and struggle with the, my grasp of the fact that this was a prolonged struggle. So being able to, that was, that was probably the toughest, being able to hang in there and being able to um, collectively have the, the, the ability to be able to hang in there, stay strong, keep going um the yeah so you know the knowledge that or the reminder actually you know that this is once you get the one you move a mountain one shovel at a time uh you have to go from a to b to c you can't jump from a to z it doesn't work you lose track you lose your relationship with people so i think that so much method of work that we learned in the early days and especially in the work that we did on the survival programs and in our various different campaigns especially around community control of police um i think were, were the real strengths that 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 i learned that really helped me that helped me be a good alderman actually in the end in in terms of staying strong i noticed on your wikipedia page that somebody posted up some fairly nasty quotes from a column or two by Mike Royko uh, during your aldermanic uh, period. Um, how much did that get you down and did he ever come around? Um, well, actually we had some in, in the early elections in 70, he wrote some articles that were pretty damning of my opponent <laughs> or some of his precinct captains, so it was ironic. Um, I don't, um, Royco, actually, we were, we shared a podium at an independent political event where I got an award many years, some years later, when I was Alderman, I can't remember exactly when, but shortly before he died. So I guess, yeah, he might have come around. At least he was friendly that day. Um, I never, there were a few, if, if there were, there were a few city hall reporters in Chicago, at least most of the time I was alderman, there were always the, the people who covered City Hall always were the same people. I mean, they had their beat. And some of them were education, which I did a lot of before I became alderman. Um, so there, I did develop some relationships with some of the um, different reporters, but most of them, it was a, I had a tense relationship with because I had to, and they didn't understand where I was coming from. And sometimes I was able to get it across and sometimes not. But the main problem I had is that I'm always looking for a solution and I'm not really interested in a superficial response to anything. I want people to understand the essence. So you have to get to it. And I think by sorting through details before I get to a general statement. So that I'm saying all that to say, it's very hard to get a soundbite out of me. <laughs> and, um, and the reporters that wanted to cover me 
were very frustrated by that. And the ones that didn't, just it was great. They just didn't have to cover me. Um, and if they had to, I realized that even though it was counterintuitive, it was important for me to give them a mouthful uh, because it was the only way, my only chance of getting any kind of decent coverage is if they understood where I was coming from, or at least they had the facts. So I always had this sort of song and dance that I did with reporters, sometimes friendly, sometimes just struggling. In, in the decades before you got elected, when you were doing the organizing, what action gave you the greatest satisfaction? Oh my God, I don't know. I, I loved ultimately getting into conversations with people where I could see a light bulb go off. <laughs> or, you know, so there were moments when like, I do have one story in the book where I, I had knocked on someone's door multiple times and um, trying to get them to, while I was doing home distribution of the Black Panther paper, trying to get them just to talk to me because we always had much more, we had a lot to say. We'd talk about the paper, but we'd also talk about all the things we were doing in the community. And um, after multiple, multiple, multiple times that I knocked on his door, he's a huge guy. I didn't know who was behind the door. He opened the door, grabbed the paper out of my hand and said, and I, you know, I kind of like, what do you, what's going on here? So I'm like, oh, and, um, and then he says, what do you have there? And he grabbed it out of my hand and he just started talking to me. and joined the home distribution round. Um, so that was as a story representative of, that was it, you know, you actually, there was a light bulb moment. You actually made a connection. Um, so that was both, you know, one-on-one, but there were so many, so many things that we did that were rewarded by the participation of so many more people um, that, that there's probably too many to mention. Yeah. What about on the council? What, what were what do you think were the most important things you accomplished on the council in terms of the greatest positive impact to the greatest number of people? Was it the increased AIDS funding? Uh, was it some of the development issues? What do you think? Um, the for me it was uh, boy I don't know um, every day seemed like a struggle around something. There are things that I can tell you that. Uh, this is sort of an opposite answer, but I can tell you that of all of the things that I did do, the ones that I feel the like we didn't do enough of or didn't figure it out, because it's really all about anything can be solved ultimately. You just have to figure out what it is. The ones that I feel the most, probably the only one that I hate to use the term regret, but um, let me use it loosely and say that the one area of regret would be in um, the area of police misconduct and, well, actually in, in, in the structure of the police, the institutional racism and the institutional inherent corruption that exists within the police department and the absolute difficulty and inability to have, to make the kind of changes that would really, that we still need to make to, to really change the relationship, especially uh, for young people uh, who are constantly geared towards uh, a process of criminalization rather than a, a process of realizing their, you know, really being able to, having their chances and opportunity to realize their full potential. And um, I think that's where I feel the most concerned about those where it's been possible to make change. Um, 
clearly the human rights legislations and changes that were made were important, but on housing, to me, it's about stable communities. Um, housing to me is really critical to that only because if you don't have a roof over your head, it's hard to be stable, but it's so much broader than that, which is also where the police come in. But it's really, ultimately, you don't, if you don't have true public safety where everyone feels safe and has the opportunity then to fully realize their full potential. So you need to be able to have access to the educational system. You need to have access to um, a, a stability, to a way to make money that um, uh, gives you the opportunity to live your life as opposed to work. You know, you don't have to, you're not living to work, but you're working to live, but you need to have that work or some resource to do it. There's so many components of it. And for me, um, one of the most key issues was to address the issue of affordability in the city. And I had a lot of success in doing that um, but I didn't have success in broadening enough the commitment to that so that that continued after I left the city council. So it's still on the agenda, supposedly, and it's talked about here and there, but to really move forward and make, um, and make progress on, the, on this notion of both stable communities and affordability of which housing is a piece um, I feel like we've really gone backwards, not forwards, um, in the last 12 years. And even during the whole, since I've left, but during the whole time that I was there, that was a daily struggle. And um, to accomplish any kind of forward moving movement, it also was important that the broader number of people understood what was going on, which is why I spent so much time on the budget and so much time in the council making the budget hearings be fully engaged in so that the media had a chance to be able to actually know what was the breath more about what was in the budget because there was more hearings and to be able to talk about it more to the public and therefore have the public know more, uh, but also be interested in attending. So there are all these things going on that I think are key to people really getting into understanding what things are about, but you can and then to act accordingly and make demands. Um, and I think that while in some ways there's more of that because there's some more progressive people on the council, um, in other ways, some of the real key questions for me that have to do with having a material impact and really dealing with public safety just are not getting, they just, they're moving too slowly. They're just moving too slowly. So I'm very hopeful at this next series of elections uh, that there can be, uh, I'm really positive about what the potential outcome can be. And hopefully the level of debate and discussion is more than just a superficial uh, telling people what they want to hear, but a real, um, and more often than not, a real conversation about what could be and what we need to do to get there. Speaking of the budget, was there much of a reaction when you voted the first time for a mayor daily budget in 1999? Oh, when I... I don't think it was 99. I think it was 2000. But oh, my God, that was a big deal. They, I mean, no one could believe it. <laughs> it was a very big deal. And, and the funny thing was that, I mean, ultimately, I remember the year, I remember thinking about this and saying, you know, this is really my habit. And I really don't have a problem with voting no again, but I don't really have a reason to. So uh, because they had agreed to do a bunch of citywide stuff, which no one understood why I was talking about citywide stuff. So I got a, um, 
uh, I got them to agree to do an amnesty program on parking tickets, which was huge because, you know, people couldn't go to work because they couldn't get their car. They couldn't pay for it. Um, and and they were like, well, what, you know, it affected people in my ward quite a bit, but it was citywide. And it was like, why are you working on citywide stuff as one example? Um, that was constantly an, a question to me. But to me, everything is related. And you're also helping people in your ward. Um, but yeah, they were like, uh, so I got, a, there were a bunch of things that they agreed to do, but the main thing was I'd gotten answers to every single one of my questions, which I had been saying for years, it, if you're not going to answer me, how can I possibly vote for this or vote on it? And so I had gotten the answers to every single one of my questions. I'd gotten them before the vote. Most cases I'd gotten them before the committee uh, heard that department and um and so it seemed like if I voted against it, it was I was just being cute. It wasn't, you know, but I, I couldn't I didn't really have an argument because my argument had been that you weren't giving me the information and they were actually agreeing to make changes. So to me, it was like, OK, if I vote for this budget, I'm now in a position to be able to use this activity that, you know, this sort of um, uh, way in which it came about as as a standard for future budgets, including getting attention to these any number of these different issues that were really critical uh, from my perspective. So, uh, you know, whatever it was. And but from other people's point of view, it was, oh, she's now made a deal and um, she's going to get this. She's going to get that. And that was largely because of the cynicism that people have about the way in which politics generally works. So sure, if that meant that there were people in city government that were now going to talk to me who were afraid to talk to me before, I'd take that. <laughs> that was great. And I would take advantage of it. Um, it wasn't like I hadn't figured out how to do it before, but that made life easier. So that meant I could do more. So that was good. But it wasn't to get, it wasn't, that wasn't the reason I was voting for it. The reason I was voting for it is I'd made demands and they'd been met. And now it's time to move on and make more demands and get those met. And, uh, but yeah. The, the reaction was, it was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was like, oh my God, there were people, the person who was the chairman of the budget committee at the time jumped up because she didn't know I was going to do it. <laughs> and was like, she couldn't, she was like, she screamed and she turned to me because I sit behind her a few rows and was like, really? Did you really say that? Yeah, it was funny. How did that then play into a couple of years later, there's a, a so-called big box ordinance yeah. that mandated a $9.25 minimum wage to be indexed uh, annually, cost of living index, for stores with 90,000 square feet. Daily vetoed it, and you voted to sustain the veto. How difficult a vote was that for you, and how much did that surprise and or disappoint your supporters? That was really one of the hardest votes for me on the city council. The problem that existed for me was on the one hand, the ordinance had been gotten as far as it had gotten because Ed Burke, who was one of the um, architects of the opposition to Harold Washington in 1983, this is like 2006 or seven, I think, Ed Burke, had negotiated this ordinance and the way they had gotten to the 90,000 square feet number was that he said it had to be at least that it had to be that because in his ward all of the big boxes were smaller 
had less than 90,000. So it was his way to support something citywide and not have it negatively affect any of his funders or supporters. For me, the issue was about national chains that were not paying the living wage and that people couldn't survive on without having two or three jobs. And those, the majority of those were much smaller. They were the McDonald's, you know, the Burger Kings, all of the fast food stores, and many of the smaller big boxes like a, you know, Ace or even some of um, I think Home Depot, there were a bunch of them that were, sl- were under 90,000. So the only ones that they really affected was Walmart, which wasn't yet in the city. So this was a way to keep them out. I didn't have a problem with that. I just thought you should be including everyone or having something that actually had a much more material impact on the people being affected and Target. And Target, this was in the middle of, I had I was negotiating a, um, a development that was going to, the goal of which was to accomplish what I had set out to do when I was first alderman, which was to prove, we didn't talk about this when we first talked about uh, Uptown, um, but we wanted to prove that it was possible to create an, uh, a development that was designated to benefit the people who lived there in the area, in the community, um, and to finish that development and actually have it be able to serve those people. So we were developing a um, in, the, in an area of the at Montrose and, and Broadway, between Wilson and Montrose and Broadway, on a five-acre five site, a um, how affordable housing, um, a big box that had been actually a target, which was actually part of a survey um, that was done among 1700, that 1700 people responded to. It was like one of those two of the highest responses of what people wanted. Bunch of smaller retail, um, a campus park for a local school, uh, but it was a critical mass uh, from, an, from a retail point of view in a community, in an area that really needed it, but mostly it was about the housing. and. Um, and it, the target was a piece of what we were doing, and it had on remarkably broad support from a very broad group of people uh, who really disagreed with me on, um, on every on each other, and also included my opposition as well as my supporters, who were upset because they actually wanted more housing, but we were we did as much housing as we could. Anyway, the point is that uh, I was sort of caught in between these two things and had lots of conversation. Actually, I met with all of the unions that were part of uh, the um, part of the proposal and supporting it. And they actually, you know, in those meetings, the leadership said, we're gonna give you a pass. You have to do what you have to do. Because I had been, because I was one of the, you know, strongest proponents for affordability in the city, specifically around housing, which they were also engaged in. Um, and they didn't disagree with me on this broader picture of, uh, of uh, on the, how cynical it was, the way in which this was written and how limited it was, a reach it was going to have. And we had negotiated actually with Target uh, before I voted, they had agreed to do uh, a number of things, including starting their wages out at, at, at either at or pretty close to what we, at that time was a, min, was a, for, was a living wage. I think they'd agreed to start it at that. They'd agreed to uh, give a uh, early application process to people living um, in the community surrounding where they were going to be. 
so they were all, and they, they met all that uh, in the end. It was a few years later, but they met it. Um, so it was very hard for me, but those are the reasons that I didn't vote actually in the original, in the original vote. It, it came to a head for me when um, the veto vote came up and I had to actually get out there and do something I would never have imagined I would do, which is to vote with Daly, number one, on something so big, and then to vote with him on something that on its appearance was anti-labor. But in reality, um, I didn't think was, given that it wasn't gonna have that broad impact, material impact that everyone, that they, the proponents were claiming it would have. Can I answer your question? Yeah. W would the younger Helen Schiller have understood and supported that analysis and, conclu and conclusion? Maybe. We often were, we, I, I think maybe, yeah, I think so. I'm not 100% sure, but I think so. Had that younger Helen Schiller had the opportunity to know all those facts and details and had that conversation. I mean, the people we were it wouldn't have affected. So, for instance, in Uptown in 72, there was one grocery store which ultimately closed and which we um, we picketed out of to demand that they remove grapes and lettuce from their shelves in the early 70s or mid 70s. And I'm sure that the people there had a very poor living wage. I mean, didn't have a living wage. And most people in Uptown were losing their jobs or struggling to survive. And, and I think that if there was a proposal that wouldn't have affected them, wouldn't have addressed their issues with that, and we had understood that, then, then yeah, I would have understood that. But I don't know what information I would have had. Um, but with the same information, yeah, without it, I don't know. Were there things uh, that Alderman Schiller did that you know organizer Schiller would have been confused or, or upset by? Well, there's this dichotomy that I mentioned earlier. So I think that it wasn't until I was alder actually alderman that, and was confronted by people like myself, including my friends who were demanding things and demanding that I find a solution where I saw I also needed their help in getting that solution. So I think that I wouldn't, as an alderman, I didn't fault anyone for bringing something to me and making that demand. It was incumbent upon me to ask them for the help that I needed and explain why I needed it and to establish that relationship. So in that sense, as the activist, I don't think that um, I would have, if as an alderman, I wasn't responsive to the activist, then yeah, as an activist, I would have been really upset. But having said that, as an alderman, had I not done that and someone had pointed it out to me, I hope that I would have understood that I was just, I had to make a change. I think that most of the time when it was pointed out to me, I had to, so we had some, we had some conflicts and, um, and it was difficult because I couldn't always, some of this stuff, you know, you don't really know whether you're going down the right path or not until it plays itself out. So it could be a while before you are able to make an evaluation. Am I making the right or the wrong choice? Um, so I think that as an activist, I didn't care about that. As an alderman, I had to actually do something that would have an impact on someone's life. There was some power involved there. I had to be concerned about it. And, you know, we're still waiting to see in some cases whether it was the right or the wrong choice. So I think that's the difference, if you know what I mean. 
how has Chicago city government changed since you first got elected in 87 and since you left in 2011? Well, Harold Washington was a unique mayor in, um, and not any, I mean, he raised the bar in a lot of areas. Um, I think that uh, Sawyer and then Daly, the two aldermen that followed him, I mean, mayors that followed him, uh, made an attempt in different ways, they were in different situations to meet that bar. In Daly's case, he never quite grasped the essence of Harold's embracement of the bar that he made. So, so for instance, he set a bar on um, uh, minority participation in contracts as well as in hiring. He set a bar on school reform. Uh, he set a bar on, as an example on other things too, but take those two examples. Daly tried to meet the bar, but he did it in a way that Harold never would have. I don't think, especially with school reform. And so we didn't really get school reform. We got some, we did do as an example. So, and, and there were shades and variations of these things. Um, after him, there's some things that stayed within the DNA, if you will, of the city as, as an issue that no mayor has really figured out how to address since. I don't think they had the same political will. Um, and Ram followed Daly and Lightfoot has followed Ram. And I don't think that um, in either case, at least, and, and also with Daly, at least on the issues that are most critical uh, ultimately to address, the issues truly of institutional racism and corruption have been, um, are high on the agendas. Uh, they may be, Institutional racism may be important for life, but addressing it or figuring it out from the perspective of uh, the people most affected has continued to be done in a manner that is more blaming the victim than in solving a problem. And I think that uh, that has been true since, since um, Harold died and was reflected in each of uh, in 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 in, um, in the culture that's that that has followed each of the uh, mayors since he died, and therefore all through the time that I was alderman. Um, but I think that that we were. I can't speak for since then, but you know, I got daily. I mean, daily moved on some issues. He moved on affordability, not all the way to where I wanted to, but at least we actually had it codified that there was a goal. Um, and resources put into accomplishing that goal. Um, we were able to pass the human, um, uh, we're passing human rights ordinance under Sawyer, but we were able to build on that throughout the daily years. We were able to um, expand, uh, there was an experiment in community policing, but it was done in a manner that was so uneven, I don't think, it was very, I think it had more negative than positive aspects to it. Um, there, there, the, the Harold had initiated putting resources together to address ward by ward, historic problems with infrastructure, physical infrastructure that hadn't been addressed previously. And that continued, um, has continued to this day, uh, but not, um, but I think it's lacking some of the direction or flexibility that, 
could uh, could be more helpful in the city, but it that continued. So I I don't we're not where we need to be, and there's a lot that has to be done. But at the core of it is the question of um, affordability and the question of of public safety, and specifically um, how that is determined through the operation of the police department. Um, and until we address those things, the city is not a welcoming place, as welcoming a place as it should be to the majority of people who live here, in my view. And how has community organizing changed since you moved to Uptown 50 years ago? Well, the city has changed so much. Um, and, you know, there, the development of technologies had a huge impact on people in so many different ways. Uh, and, and it's also impacted just the structures that we live in and where we live and our expectations. So um, it's such a different world. Um, and organizing, so there's all the organizing you do through social media, which I have to admit to not having, not entirely understanding and grasping counting a lot on younger people who do grasp it. And so, you know, I, I just have a lot of faith that they know what they're doing, but I don't understand it necessarily. Um, but, you know, the stuff we did, the door-to-door -door work is is much harder to do. There's, it's harder to get into places. It's harder to, uh, but still where you can go door-to-door -door and people are doing it, which they do much less than they used to, I think is still really important. It's that face-to-face -face contact, whether it's through, social media or in the real world um, is critical. And I think there's less of that than there used to be, but there's so many other ways in which people communicate. So it used to be more focused and concentrated the way they did. It was easier for me anyway, to be able to understand that and deal with it. Uh, today, it is a whole new ball game and there are people who understand it much better than I do. Um, and I think they have to give the answer to that question, but that wasn't there 30, 40 years ago. Um, and it is now, and it's very impactful in some way. I'm just not sure exactly how to best use it. Well, even with that caveat, finally, any advice for the activists and older persons of today and tomorrow? I just think that um, what I, I think building a sea to swim in is really critical. And both the activists and anyone in a position of power, including elected officials, need to uh, it's a symbiotic relationship that's really important if you want to move forward. And that's much more important than any of our egos or individual uh, quirks. Um, and I think that to, and one, two, I think in this environment, we need to think more about united fronts to be able to be on the defense of uh, so much of the really reactionary right-wing insanity that has, well, first of all, the right-wing insanity that's moved into our world, but also I think a tendency to be reactionary uh, for both the left and the right. Everybody is reacting these days, um, largely because of the level of polarization. So I think um, it's a really important time to be thinking about what does it take to, to at least maintain the level of uh, uh, opening up that the country has done, I mean, let me put it this way. We have right-wing folks that we would have thought years ago that weren't gonna get the kind of acknowledgement and sense of purpose and place that they have today. 
including their influence on the Supreme Court, as an example, um, largely out of a philosophy that says that, that at least resonates pl uh, publicly as we want to go back, we're originalists, we want to go back to the original version of the uh, Constitution versus everyone else who's benefited from since the original version, which, you know, was that you're only a citizen if you're if you own property, which means you're wealthy, you're white, and you're a man. And um, all of, but also which had in it through the Bill of Rights and the way in which it was structured, the opportunity to broaden those rights. So all of through amendments. And so all the ways in which those rights have been broadened since the late 18th century, since the 18th century, um, uh, in terms of civil rights, in terms of the right to vote, in terms of all of those things um, are at risk now because there are people who actually are have a majority on the Supreme Court making these decisions that believe that we should get rid of those, you know, those things, that progress. And so anyone who wants that progress to continue because there's so much more we have to do um, needs, we have to start with a point of being at least defensive at the moment organizing the way in which the right organized, which is on the most local level, to make sure that we build the seed that we need to build in, in order to be able to move forward and expand access to uh, all of the things that this world has to offer, rather than to pull back on access and to go back to this initial very um, institutional racism that was the basis of our founding of our of our nation. And that's what I think that's that's the core which I think we have to look to the future. We have to protect what we've gained. We have to make sure we build a sea in which to swim in in order to be able to expand and broaden that. And in the words of Chairman Fred, dare to struggle, dare to win. Absolutely. You don't dare to struggle, you don't deserve to win. I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Helen Schiller. Again, the book is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community from the very good people at Haymarket Books. George Dreckman will be your host next week with his guests Frank Grant and Rich Bogovich. I'll be back on Boxing Day, that's the day after Christmas, with local musician Michael Massey for a conversation about his memoir, More. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Charlie Pittman, Engineer Andrew Thomas, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener sponsored community radio. <laughs>